How often do we talk uncensored politics? Well, if you've been listening to the show for any amount of time, you know that that's something we do fairly regularly. But this week, I'm particularly excited to bring you an episode with Nishe Balahadia, who is absolutely no holds barred, ready to talk about politics and community. And I'm so excited to share it with you all. Everyone has a story to tell. And this is Nishay's. I'm Joy Dertinger, and you're listening to 99 Lead Balloons. Episode 9, Community and Politics, Part 1. Hi, Nishay. This is Nishay Balahadia joining us on the 99 Lead Balloons pod. I'm so excited to have you here with me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. I am just so pumped to be here and talking about like this topic. Yes. Yeah, (laughs) me too. I was, you know, I was really worried um, at first when I, I was talking to my husband about it. I was like, I really want to ask her, do you think that she would be like, no, I don't even want to talk about that. And he like, he was like, all you ever tell me is that like, she talks about this stuff all the time. I think this is in her <laughs> wheelhouse. Like she will want to do this. And I was like, oh, okay. I'll ask. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. I am like, well, and it's so funny because, you know, as I am like starting to become more vocal about my thoughts because um, we're just where we are as a social, like a society. Yeah. And me feeling more safe and comfortable expressing these. It's just very interesting because people are like, wow, <laughs> I need I need to talk to you about these things because yeah. and it's uh, like to me coming from just trauma and life, mm-hmm. the imposter syndrome. It, and we've talked about this where it's like the imposter syndrome is like, no, 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 you don't know anything about mm-hmm. anything. Mm-hmm. So you should not be accepting like to be talked on podcasts or like have your thoughts be aired out, which is why like I never got a Twitter or anything. Oh. And then now I'm like, fuck it. Yes. <laughs> Let's go there all the way. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to spew my thoughts out. <laughs> yes. Yes. Twitter is such a great place for that too. I like rediscovered Twitter in the last six months and I was like, wow, where has this been all my life? Same. Well, and I never before because I felt like it was just so much and mm. like putting um, contain my thoughts. Yeah. While I'm typing, like I'm like I was like a Donald Trump where I was just like friggin' <laughs> <laughs> like like crying and and tweeting. You know, yes. like that's what I thought I would be doing. <laughs> and so I never did it because I was like I'm not gonna embarrass myself like that. Yeah. And um that now I'm just like no fuck this like yeah. everybody can hear what I have to say because <laughs> apparently people people think the same way as me this is crazy so yeah it's really cool yeah how wild is that when you realize you're not the only one who thinks that way yeah like and like same shared experiences in like just throughout right throughout your life puts you kind of in this bucket of intersectionalities mm-hmm. and and I think this year has been the first year where I realized how many different intersections that I personally just cover and mm-hmm. uh in the beginning of COVID I got very overwhelmed of like how do I do this like what do I how am I supposed to be useful Mm. Um, not that I really think that we need to be useful. That's definitely like a colonized thing, but how do I use my story to just help others Mm -hmm. feel supported? And as that started to come out, it just, I realized that there are a lot of people that have a lot of shared experiences or shared emotions and trauma, and they really do have the same feelings and I just need to really express my own. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I think there are a lot of people who um, they think, oh, well, that story has already been told. But the reality is that it's, it's not being told enough and it's not visible enough. It's not audible enough because if it was, everyone would be talking about it. Everyone would be aware of it and it would be normalized. Right. 
And realizing that like everything goes into your choices, like how you choose things and realizing and like just having to sift all of that out and understanding that is hard. Yeah. And realizing that I have been doing it for so long, but silently and like by myself essentially Mm -hmm. um, was very interesting. And then as internet, you know, like as internet evolves and as I, my community starts evolving, I'm like, Oh shit. Yeah. Oh, like, Oh, I have friends that are like this. Like, Oh, you're my friend (laughs) and you get me. And so it's just very interesting to like be in the space that we are in now, Mm -hmm. like in shelter in place in a revolution in the middle of like California and West coast burning in the middle of an election year. Oh my God. (laughs) There are too many things to even count. Cool. Yeah. It's great. (laughs) And it's literally that meme where it's like, this is fine. (laughs) Smoking a cigarette in the burning house. That's fine. (laughs) Yep. Very much so. (laughs) Oh yeah. 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 It's wild. It's wild. Um, Well, and that actually ties really well into something that I wanted to ask you. You're talking about like, how can I, Um, use my voice and how can I use my story and share my story to help others and to make a difference for other people Um, and you founded Mighty Community Advocacy and you've done a lot of other really amazing work and I wonder if you would just tell us a little bit about yourself and that can be your experiences or what you do or anything you want to share. Yeah Um, so I am I'm indigenous Guam tomorrow Um, my mom raised us basically in that culture. We are matriarchs. Um, Island culture is very much a matriarchal. Everything centers around the, like our queen, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And our queen and the family. And so that's how culturally kind of background. Sorry, can uh, it started freezing up? Um, um, oh, am I? Am I? Can you hear me now? I can now. I'm so sorry. No, I wonder if it's okay. my um, internet. Might be my internet too. <laughs> like, let me move closer. Ew, this internet is expensive. <laughs> I don't know. It's one of us. It's fine. Yeah, it's okay. Um, You're good now. Um, but- so, in um, that's how you identify in like culturally. Right. And then, so that's what my mom grew up in. Um, And my dad grew up in a very Catholic, Mexican, Filipino, strict, but also very, very abusive home. Mm. Um, And I grew up in that trauma. Um, And his father was my main abuser. And um, he, my father, because of living with this for his childhood was not the nicest person. And so then my whole childhood was just in trauma and abuse from these men. Um, And in the background, we were living in this very affluent, high socioeconomic status neighborhood. Um, So we were very much white proximity. Um, Our you know, we, I looked at the demographics this year of like just this, the town that we lived in because they liked to say they weren't from San Jose. Um, so it's not like they wanted to be like, oh, we're Silicon Valley, we're Almaden, like mm-hmm. just a snobby, like Beverly Hills, right? Or like Calabasas. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just like that vibe. And we, you know, we grew up in that and um, white conservative, well, white thinking that they're progressive liberals, but really being centrist Mm -hmm. um, and using the excuse of like, well, I believe in the humanities of Democrats, but I'm very fiscally um, conservative, which in reality is just saying like, I really like my money and I don't (laughs) give a shit about anybody else. (laughs) I was just going to say, how can you care about the humanity part and then say like, yeah, 
Also, you can't have any of my money. Absolutely. Yeah. And like, and that is like what was projected. Right. And mm-hmm. so I grew up in that. I, um, I always say I was a wannabe white girl. So like <laughs> everything was always about like protecting white culture and protecting the white people around me and not realizing that because this is what, um, I was born in, or this is where my family like strived to be because in trauma, I feel like when, especially when it comes to men that have had trauma and become fathers and husbands, um, I believe that their coping mechanism is to get rich Mm. because they feel like being rich and having wealth will give them a better, like a better foundation. But in reality, that's not, you have that foundation. You have to change it. Yeah. Um, And so we were living in this, like we were born, I was basically born in like tech politics Mm. Um, and having to present myself because we couldn't, like my dad was, my dad is still in the tech industry and he was very like, He's very well known in the tech industry when you talk about like engineering side. And so I always had to watch who I was and like what I talked about and like police myself. And then I went to a Catholic high school and it was just so much more of like fit in this bubble because again, I'm like one of eight brown and black people in the community and like everybody's just tokenized and we're all in sports and we're all like extra overachievers and like just all of these things. And then I go to college to Fresno state and it's like, Oh, Whoa. They, what, who are these people? <laughs> and it was like a culture shock. Mm. And so much things has had happened in Fresno um, just getting into a really abusive relationship and very toxic relationship, um, physically and emotionally, um, I ended up getting pregnant and I, uh, was working, I was in a career already, like in high school, I was, i was so good at politics because I was in TV and producing and executive, you know, and editing. So I knew these politics, like, at a very young age. So then I went into TV and I freaking got pregnant and then got fired. Mm. And I was in college and like no clue what to do. And I said something in my women's studies class. Mm -hmm. And I was just telling somebody, this is probably the turning point of like when I decided what decided had me go from like being very white privilege thinking you know in this box thinking I'm in this box yeah and moving me into like this community and social justice aspect Mm -hmm. because I said it in my class and my professor was like you and I we need to talk after and I was like oh shit (laughs) and she you know after she was like they fired you and I said yeah and this is a white lady I you know everybody is all my teachers, all my mentors have been white because that's what you pick from because that's all you get. Right. And she was like, okay, well, meet me at this office tomorrow. Like, okay. So she took me to a lawyer's office <gasps> and had me tell them the whole story and advocated for them to like, please help her. She's wow. pregnant. Wow. She's like in this relationship. And that was the first time that I'd ever had somebody hear what I said and then automatically, like no questions, like if she believed me or if it was true yeah. and automatically just went into advocacy. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, I went to, I got pregnant. I ended up not suing them because the lawyer was like, we can sue them, mm-hmm. but you're just going to settle. Mm. and it'll probably be like five grand oh my gosh yeah and he was like do you want to do that he was like after because they're going to take fees blah 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 you know I'm 20 I'm like right 
not. (laughs) (laughs) So then I move home and then I start decolonizing and dismantling and getting into a lot of like the Me Too movement and advocating for sexual assault survivors. Um, And then I started doing a lot of advocacy work in sexual assault and like one-on-one with survivors doing a lot of response and first response um, and just in domestic violence because I had gotten out of it and like it was just a totally different change and it would has to have been like as I've been looking at it the last like since George Floyd mm-hmm. in the wake of George Floyd yeah. and like seeing like just examining like how did I get here or like where am I and realizing that that was like a very pivotal moment because I think that if I had just said something and she would have been like oh okay I just probably would have been on the same path of like okay this is my life I gotta be you know I gotta freaking polish it up and Mm. make it presentable and um then I'm like going through my whole life um (laughs) I love it do it (laughs) and then um I oh I went home I as I was dismantling and decolonizing I ended up my career started taking off um I became this this like workaholic in politics again with AT&T and like being learning how to talk and how to present myself in front of the white man and in front mm-hmm. of the VPs and like like just being this like who I'm like who everybody was saying like this is what you should be and like this is successful and yeah. you know like everything was materialistic and So as I was decolonizing, it started to become more and more like, oh, this is not, this is not the life for me. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I don't like these people. So then I moved out of retail, freaking went to Google thinking like, oh, I'm going to be like this. I'm going to love Google. I'm going to, they're just going to be so great. Like they headhunted me. They pulled me from AT&T and I fucking hated it. (laughs) (laughs) Shocking. And, and it was like the realization, I think that was like the first realization of like, all of these people are just putting up this optical illusion of like, life is so great. But in reality, like they are shitty ass people. Like Mm -hmm. the first week I got to 18 or got to Google, I was running an internal cell phone team, basically running the policies for everybody worldwide that Google basically was like, here, have a phone, right? Mm, for their employees and then I was also doing policy for execs the first week I got to Google I had a VP chuck a phone at my head what oh my god because it wasn't working and I and I asked her (laughs) if she turned it off and on and she (laughs) said why should I do that it should just work. Oh my God. And I took, I was like, okay, well, let me see it. Took the phone, took the battery out, put it back in, turned it back on and it started working. Mm-hmm. And then I went back to my freaking seat in my cubicle and I was like, well, it's working now. And she was like, it's not working now. And tossed <gasps> it. Oh my God. I told my boss and my boss was like, mm, typical. <gasps> and I said, uh, I'm sorry. Oh my gosh. <laughs> what did you say? And he was like, I need to remind you of something. All of these people at Google who are VPs are from like Ivy Leagues, blah, 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 and have sacrificed relationships with people to go and study and be the top of their class. They have no social skills. So you just have to know this. <laughs> no. No, no. No, no, no. When I was like, oh, hell no. Fuck Google. We are done. And that oh was week god. one. Oh, my God. Did you quit right then and there? No, oh, I stayed. Damn it. <laughs> because of the money. Yes, you know, yeah. Like, 
paid me, they were paying me $125,000. Like, oh my God. At that point in my life, I was 26, 27. Yeah. So I'm like, I can understand that. Me for $125,000 a year. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That was like when it started of like corporate life is stupid and like, Mm. why am I doing this? And like, I just like, who are these people that I'm allowing, like making money for? Yeah. And then, uh, I, I literally at 18 months, I was like, I can't do this. I gotta go. Mm. And then went into manufacturing (laughs) and manufacturing was like the, like fire under my ass because Mm. I just saw the atrocities of like capitalism of like what, what happens in our manufacturing plants. And it wasn't, and it's like our electrical, like our electronics manufacturing Mm. plants. It's um, Flextronics, the manufacturing company that I worked for is a Fortune 500 company. Essentially, anything that you can plug in, they have had a hand in or make or have put together. Wow. And see, and like being in executive row. And like being an executive assistant and a project manager to the procurement, like the CPO and seeing their attitude towards like the manufacturing people Mm -hmm. and um, just having to, it's, it was just so interesting. Um, Flextronics was at one point making all the iPhone cameras and my other boss was the cam the director of optics mm. <laughs> <Funny>. <laughs> <laughs> and um he was he was one of those people that was like just a horrific person he I have so I had so many HR complaints on him because he would like degrade me and like throw mm. like he he threw a sandwich at me one time because it wasn't what he wanted and like oh just God. shit right yeah. and he and I was in charge of communications for emergencies for him. So anytime a line in manufacturing, they call it line down. And it's when the that production belt just stops. Mm. And typically there's an issue, right? It's like there's no supplies. Um, we can't get sources or we, we don't know, you know, whatever. But a lot of the times it's somebody has injured themselves yeah. in the belt yeah. and seeing the reaction. So it was actually the Moto X launch and uh, somebody had gotten their hand stuck in the belt mm. and the line was down. Line was down for 24 hours. Mm. My response, and it was in Texas. And my response was like, okay, I got the phone call. It was like late at night Mm -hmm. and they were like lines down 24 hours. Like we need a cleanup crew. We need blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, what, what happened? Like, and they said, somebody got their hand stuck or something happened with their hand and it got stuck. Mm. So I call my boss and he fucking chews me out for 20 minutes about how can people be so stupid and like how do they like not know to get that like what the fuck is wrong with you like all these things oh my god and I was like well can and that was in in response to can we reach out to their family like can I reach out can I see like can I see what they need can Mm -hmm. we find what hospital they're at like why can can we do this yeah and he was like he popped off of me so then mm. that's when I was like, fuck these people. <laughs> and uh, I ended up just like being a shit employee and getting laid off. <laughs> <laughs> and getting like this, like just fucking, I was like, I can't stand these people. I would cry on the way home, like crying on the way to work, crying on the way home because I'm like, I fucking hate these people. Mm. Like, you know, it's all white men on this executive row. They all right. don't want to hear anything. And I started getting into like advocacy and activism and policy and like, how does that look? And like making sure that thinking of the manufacturing line and like 
that's where it started of like, this is their experience. Like they're such a throwaway and they're like risking their lives and their, their healthiness Mm. for us to freaking. Yeah. Have a phone. Yeah. Yeah. And that was like the, no, Mm. fuck this. Yeah. And, um, I like got, I got laid off like eight months later. Like I was like, I'm working for this. <laughs> Fuck this. There is like fucking with my mental health. Yeah. So I um ended up getting laid off in October of 2016. And I started just like, okay, what am I really gonna do? Mm-hmm. And started advocating for like more like hard more so like hardcore. Like people were coming to me in the bay and like, hey, I need help with this. Wow. I know you know this. Like I know how. I know you know how to walk through this um, because I know that you did it or like I know somebody that you helped. Yeah. And it just started to become more apparent that like I needed to be in advocacy work. Um, and then I randomly had like a idea, a calling um, and still very much like I'm still such a Jesus believer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of like my thought process when it comes to like decisions and all of that comes from like, what would Jesus do in reality? Like a real Jesus, like the yeah. brown Jesus. Yes. And so <laughs> the brown Jesus. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was just basically that calling of like, you got to move. Like, this is not the place for you. Like, you're not supposed to be here. This is not where your work needs to be. Um, and I just was like, fuck, okay, I guess I'm going to move back to Fresno. And uh, at the time, I had no job. I was on unemployment. Wow. <laughs> I was, you know, like I, uh, Kennedy was in sixth grade. I had a huge savings because of my corporate life. Mm. And uh, I was like, at shitty credit because my ex-husband f- and I just, we just fucked each other's credit up. And, um, and just bad decisions and trauma. Mm-hmm. So I was like, let me apply to this apartment in Fresno. Like totally thinking like, this is dumb. Like, why am I paying this $50? I'm going to lose this $50 for this application fee. Right. <laughs> I get, I got on a plane uh, to go to Japan because Kennedy and I had this trip, trip to Tokyo planned awesome. for her birthday. It was April of 2017. And wow. um, we got a, I got a phone call. It was a five high nine number. And I was like thinking, I was thinking that it was uh, somebody. I did. I did. I, I don't know if I can know who it was. <laughs> and um, it was the apartment complex saying, "Like we got your application. Like, can you pick up your keys?" Wow. And I was like, "What? Holy shit! I'm moving to Fresno!" Oh my gosh. <laughs> and that was Kennedy's birthday, April fourteenth, and I went and picked up my keys May first. Wow. And it was like just a start. And then I ended up becoming a foster parent um, and mentoring and advocating for bio parents and really helping like partner with them and support them alongside, like helping them become he- healthy and he- mm. in healing. Yeah. And uh, just totally turned off by like the foster care, the typical foster care and adoption world and yeah. like just the right saviorism. And, um, like really became into BLM, um, just because, and I hate saying because I have a black daughter, but like, that's what started it. And now it's like humanity, you know, like, yeah, we're talking about people and souls. And, um, then COVID happened and I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Uh, I, was working for this huge marketing, digital marketing agency. Of course you are. (laughs) Uh, Remotely. And we were um, just, you know, I was working remotely. This is like something that I was like, ah, just do, you know, let's make, like I can make money. Yeah. Um, Being an executive assistant and doing digital marketing. Uh, And then I was furloughed because uh, New York. Right. Right. Yeah. Was the epicenter. And then we came back, it was like the end of mid-May and George, uh, George Floyd was murdered. And that week 
was the craziest fucking week of my life mm. because that boss who is like Christian would not say black lives matter. Mm. And this whole time I was like, Oh my God, I've been fucking working for you. Mm-hmm. And you have not been on the same page as me. Right. And then I was like, okay, cool. Bye. I quit. I like just quit. I yeah. was like, nope, we're done. We yeah. I quit. You, you were, I can't. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I quit, people started calling me. Wow. Of like, I need help with this. Mm-hmm. Or like my uh, one was my brother is in the hospital. Like, how do I need your help? Um, and that was kind of like, okay, mighty starting. Yeah. And I had had this whole vision of actually, and it's actually now the business plan for the actual mighty agency, but the whole vision of it was to start as a, I saw agency yeah. in my, in my vision. Yeah. I saw agency and I thought it was a foster care agency, mm. but it's really this, like, it's really this agency that was like the idea. Mm-hmm. So now it's just like um, grassroots organization and activism in any way and really trying, like really being trauma support. Yeah. Um, and and because of how nonprofits and white non, you know, how this whole just capitalistic nonprofit. Yeah, nonprofits are not um white saviorism yeah yeah is structured it's not you know it's so hard to just do to be really be trauma supportive response Mm. so we have been working on like refining and defining our demographics but it's hard because I don't want to do that right but right now it's like dv response sexual assault response and uh, CPS support, case mm-hmm. support mm-hmm. on the biological side. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that is really interesting to me. So um, because I work in social services, I am a home visitor, I'm a parent educator. Um, mm-hmm. And so a lot of, the, I do work with a lot of foster families, but I'm working with the foster parents usually, not the bio parents, um, because there are so many restrictions placed on bio parents that it's like, very limited timeframes, very limited um, types of interactions and levels of interactions. And sometimes kids can't see their bio parents at all. And in my work of, I have to, they're called visits, you know, right. um, it doesn't count as a visit unless the child is in the home, unless the child is present. So it doesn't necessarily mean that the parent has to have custody of the child. Right. Um, but I can't, I can't work with just the parents if the child is not present and Mm -hmm. it's really complicated like a lot of people hear that and they think like well what's the problem just schedule it when bio mom or bio parents have a visit with their child it's never that simple it's not that simple Mm -mm. and man um foster care is like a whole thing we could probably go on a whole tangent on that oh yeah but um, I, so I had a hysterectomy when I was, I had a hysterectomy when I was 23. I had mm. stage four endo, endometriosis, uh, very severe. I was like on so many painkillers. It's what started my whole addiction to like substance abuse and my, just my addictions. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that surgery, I was like, okay, I, I wanted four kids, like all of these things, like, you know, I have one, what can we do? And like, and I was single when I, this happened. So I just was like, started researching and was like, oh, we could, I could adopt, I could go through foster care. And so that was when I was 23 and I got married when I was 26 and we started the foster care and then like a whole bunch of shit came out in our relationship because we were doing the foster care trainings. Yeah. And then I ended up, we ended up getting divorced. Right. And as I finally got to a foster parent, 
all of the glorifying and the praising of foster parents had seeped so far into my freaking mind that it became like, oh my gosh, I'm so great, right? I, I am so great. Look at what I'm doing for these kids. And that was like the first six months. And the first six months were hell mm-hmm. because I was listening to everybody else and like what these people and, and, and at the same time, still trying to be myself and uh, was very much like trying to build relationships with these parents that whose kids I was had their lives in my hand. Right. But then other people were like, why are you doing that? What are you Mm. doing? And like, you know, she was on drugs or, you know, she doesn't take care of her kids or like, you know, and Mm. like that whole that and like, and excuse me, what was weird to me was that I had already been in this decolonized, dismantled, aware space Mm -hmm. in the Bay area, because I was in, I was working for YWCA. I was doing trainings. I was in this space of like, I know what trauma is yeah, and I know how to handle it. Yeah. And then I moved here and got wrapped in that white, like the white proximity and the, the wanting to like, because white culture is so extreme here because it's like a conservative in the middle of fucking California it's conservative ass Central Valley and so we get here and I go back to like half it's like half that mindset because I'm in it I'm in the church I'm working for the church I'm listening to these people but also knowing like in my mind I'm like that's some what they're saying is some bullshit yeah But then having to be like, okay, like stuff it back in, like, don't Mm. let's create waves. Yep. (laughs) This is my community, you know? Yeah. And having to evolve and like really see the abuse in the church Mm -hmm. and the abuse that was happening to me and the exploitation that was happening to me. And then moving that to like, what the fuck is wrong with me? Mm, Yeah. Like the last, uh, so I got, they fired me January of two, what year are we in? 2020. So January of 2019. Okay. So it's been a year. It's almost been two years Mm -hmm. that they, they fired me, laid me off. Mm -hmm. But in those, these past two years, it's just been like reminding myself, like these people have conditioned you to re- like to uphold white supremacy and like yeah. uphold these colonized thoughts and like get like you knew this was wrong. Like, let's go back to like advocating against it yeah. and like realizing that that's what I was doing for these bio moms. I just wasn't doing it to the foster parents. I was doing it to CPS. Yeah. Um, Cause I was in, I was always in CPS meetings, like yelling, like, no, we are not having that. Or like, no, you cannot do that. Or like, you know, or yeah. like um, when my, and I call my foster or I call my bio moms, baby mamas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> because I still like, I still talk to them. Like I still have all my foster kids over. Yeah. And like, even in my, like with my baby mamas and their significant others and like, as they're trying to figure out this partnership and like being healthy, I'm always the one that's like, nope, nope, we're not doing that. Mm. (laughs) And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, nope, he can't do that. We are not doing that. That is not how we do this. Mm. Oh, and that's just because there's never been anybody in their lives that has been able to a feel like they have that kind of relationship with them where you can I can say that yeah. and them not immediately be like oh well fuck this lady she has my kids she thinks I can right. she can tell me whoever like whatever she wants right um and realizing that that has been my stance the whole time of like let's partner and mm. these fucking people <laughs> have like made me into this 
fucking white evangelical wannabe, you know? And so mm, yeah. all of that influences yes. my whole politics. Yes. <laughs> It does, though. And I, I think that that's one of the things that's so interesting is that when people talk about like, well, you can't let that influence your politics and you can't let that inform your politics. Bullshit, I can't. Yeah. I have to. And that's like, um, and that I think is also very much privilege, right? Because yeah. people who have not gone through trauma can't put themselves in that sh- in shoes of trauma. Mm. And uh, thinking about those people in trauma and yeah. voting for the people who are also thinking for those of those people that are in the most trauma in our community. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that is that's how we awesome. got here. I love it. That's, that's a wild, wild story. And that's like the cliff. Notes. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> Here, we have simplified it and condensed it for, you know. That's, that's the booklet, um, like the pamphlet about yeah, yeah. my life. <laughs> All about Nishé Nishé yeah. in 10 pages or less. Yeah, that is 10 pages. Yeah. 15, minutes. 15 minutes and 10 pages. That's great. <laughs> I love that. But that's like, it is so important. You can't, you can't understand anybody's approach to anything if you don't know anything about their life. I was just talking about this with um, my sister-in-law. Like, if you're not listening, if you are not having conversations where, yes, you might have to hold some tension there. You might have to hold some additional space and it might be uncomfortable. But if you're not listening to other people who are having experiences that you haven't had, then it is impossible for you to love them. You, you cannot love them. Because there's no... I feel like in Christian communities, we are taught to share our story because God tells us to. Yeah. But we are not taught to listen to other people's stories because God wants us to as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that we feel like everybody's story is our story to share because it is God's story. Yeah. Ooh. And I think that people mistaken that as compassion and empathy because they don't know what compassion and empathy is. Yeah. And so they think that telling people like, ooh, you told your story, I can tell your story too. And that means that I know you well. Mm, Yeah. Yep. But not being able to experience, like, yeah, not being able to experience that pain or, and for me, it's even like, you don't have to experience my pain because my life has been very, very painful. Mm. Um, And I don't want anyone to experience that pain, that pain almost put me in the ground a bunch of times. And so I would never want that anyone to experience that, but you also have to have an understanding of that. Yeah. That like my life has almost buried me Mm -hmm. more than three times, more than four times, you know? Yep. I think that is something that Christians cannot understand because they, it's the white wealthy Mm -hmm. you know like these people that are like just so high and mighty that they have had never had the privilege or they've had the privilege of never having to experience any kind of hurt or pain Mm -hmm. and those are the people that are leading the people that are hurting in pain yeah yeah it's it is so bizarre I mean I remember like actively being taught that suicide was like the sin that would prevent you from like going to heaven heaven. yes and not like oh my god somebody is in so much pain that they actually and and they actually think it would be better for themselves and other people if they didn't exist that they must be in so much pain. What can we do to alleviate that pain? That pain. Instead, it's how can you be so selfish? How could you think that? You know, you're going to put so many people through so much, and also you won't go to heaven because God 
God hates that. Yeah. And, and then as I became more understanding of the Bible and having a better relationship with the Holy Spirit and with Jesus and with God and understanding what agape love is and mm-hmm. not what love it, like what love is, Yeah, <clears throat> you know, yeah, that realizing that and understanding like agape and really understanding what it means to unconditionally love somebody through emotions and what that means. Like what does loving somebody through emotions mean? And really it's just being a trauma, like being trauma informed and not being a dick. Yes. (laughs) I love that. There's so much to be said for that. Right. Because like, I mean, I did not know I I did not know a thing about trauma. I remember after I had my first child, um, my midwife kept talking to me about like, well, yeah, it's natural for you to be having a tough time. You had a really traumatic delivery. You had a really traumatic labor and all labor and all delivery is traumatic, but yours had some extra stuff happening. So that's particularly traumatic. And I was like, why does she keep saying trauma? Why does she keep saying traumatic? What is that? What is that? And, um, so, you know, I like it. This was 10 years ago. So I Googled it. And like, of course, it comes up like this very clinical, like medical, like, and you're like d- you know, thing where it's like trauma is like a laceration or a blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, all right, it's fine. <laughs> but like, that was the extent of it. I just kind of like left it there because I was like, so she's pointing out that I lost a lot of blood. Yeah, we knew that. And I got a lot of stitches. We, we knew that too. Okay. And that was it. You know, like didn't move the needle at all. (laughs) And (laughs) I was like, what is going on? Um, And then uh, like two years ago, yeah, just a little over two years ago, um, I started working as a, as a home visitor, as a parent educator Mm -hmm. and getting, I had to be trauma informed, getting trauma training and all of these things. And like, so many things continually coming up for me and having to schedule like additional meetings with our infant mental health specialist and like, what's wrong with me? Why am I freaking out in all of the trainings? Um, and like just losing it and everybody else, not everybody else, but other people seem fine. And I'm the one who's crying and has to leave the room. What's wrong with me? Um, and there are other people who had that experience too. Um, but the question for yeah. me was always like, what's wrong with me? <laughs> um, right. And then about a year and a half ago, like the shit hit the fan and it's, we're coming up on a close to two years now. I was diagnosed mm-hmm. with um, some conditions that were, that are the result of um, r- repeated sexual assault, um, childhood mm-hmm. sexual assault. And so mm-hmm. that, you know, like I had buried all of those experiences, locked them up tight in a box. And I was like, I'm fine. I can go through my life. It's fine. And then I got these diagnoses and I was like, hey, you mean it had an effect on me and now I can't ignore it anymore because you told me why I have this and I have to acknowledge that part of my life and I don't like it. I don't like that. Um, So that was shortly after I started working as a home visitor and started getting, you know, uh, services, therapies from... um, Mm. you know sexualist like with a therapist who's informed yeah. in sexual sexual assault and all these things um and taking meds and like got diagnosed with uh complex PTSD and yeah. all of all of those things right. that like it's the it's it's the part of me that's like oh my god like all of the things that I wish other people knew and understood is like the the part of me that I was actively suppressing for most of my life. Like I, and and, I, and and we do that in like white supremacist culture, in white culture. Like that's our main job is to like suppress trauma, push it down, right. get it out of our way. Because perfect people don't have trauma. Right. And you have to be perfect. So no, yeah. And that was a lot. And a lot of my, because I was abused from sexually abused from my grandfather from like five until I was 18. Mm. And even then, like, even in all of that, I, I repressed it all 
because I was being like, you got to be perfect. Like we got to, we got to, we got to be this part. And, Mm -hmm. you know, like, um, you're representing the family and like all of these things, like, um, and just reminding me, you know, my family was so financially abusive to me and just reminding me all the time that like, you need to make your worth and you need to work and you need to pay for yourself. And like all of these things in high school and, you know, just realizing now, like I'm just now coming to terms with like my financial abuse that my family had put on me Mm. because I never understood that it was so wrong that as a sophomore in high school, I was working 30 hours a week, but not seeing any money or as a, as a senior, you know, like working 40 hours a week, working three jobs and then being dropped off at Fresno state with $2,000 because my dad didn't, I, I don't know where the money went. Oh my God. You know, and like having to struggle and having to work and mm-hmm. like, and now like, I think it's easy for me right now. Like EDD, like EDD is fucking me over. And, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I think like there's times where I'm like in this huge, like, like I'm, this is the fucking end, but not so much as like I could be, mm. but I think it's because I was dropped off at President State. Here's your ATM card that you've never had any authority over. Mm. Uh, I paid for a month in the dorms and we paid for, and you have paid for it. It was me. I paid for it you have paid for your whole semester of tuition. Wow. And my whole first year was me surviving, but also keeping up the illusion of like, this is me. You know, I came from Mm -hmm. this really rich family and I did, I came from a rich ass family, Mm. (laughs) you know, like my dad, (laughs) my dad in high school when I was in high school, he would drive me to school on Fridays in his Ferrari. Like, <laughs> yeah. But I was working 30 hours mm, mm-hmm. and I was wearing Walmart shoes and I was going shopping for my stuff, you know? So mm-hmm. it was like having to play these politics of what is happening, what is actually happening and stuffing it. Yeah. And then like, this is what's happening or like, let's, this is what you can see. Yeah. And, um, really understanding that that is abuse and like having to survive that. I mean, I stripped for a while, um, because that was the only thing, like, what the fuck am I going to do? I don't know what the fuck to do. Mm -hmm. I was 18. I was 19, you know, um, started hanging out with like all of these girls that were prostituting and like and just in sex work but because I was abused for so long that's the only value that I had ever had Mm. and really having to survive and understanding that um and then going back to like after I left Fresno and was pregnant and then going back to that like rich white lifestyle and like suppressing all of that and never talking about it because like my mom was horrified that she found out I was stripping Mm. and I'm like but if you would have just can if you would have just let me have my money like if Mm. you would have just helped you know like if you would have supported me if you would have done all these things then I wouldn't have made your name look bad and so it was always a thing of like never talk about that I'm like, oh, okay, well, too bad now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just realizing, and now even realizing, like, in what communities that I've been in and not realizing it because my lenses were so rose-colored. Yeah. Yeah. And just how, and I think now, and I think starting activism was more, like, back in the Me Too movement was more of like, I'm going to prove myself and I'm going to show justice. And this is how I'm going to get justice for all of the things that has ever happened to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but now it's just more of like, 
I want, like, people need to know and examine their own lives and like what their own foundational thoughts are and what have they been taught and like, how is that wrong? And how is that not taking care of the neighbor? Right. Yeah. And what that looks like. Mm -hmm. And now it's like just more of education of this is how how I think. (laughs) (laughs) Because because I and I never thought that anybody, you know, like of trauma, like never thought yeah. anybody would care of like my thought process or like what do I think? And realizing that actually, it's people like think it's smart. Yeah, <laughs> you mean it's valuable like, and it, it has inherent yeah. worth of its own. Like, oh, my experiences are worth something. Cool, yeah, they're valid. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's the, how the journey of like activism and like just trying to incorporate everything into what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. Well, because activism and activism is political, whether we want to say that it is or not, all activism is political. Um, my work in in nonprofit is political. My work as a home visitor like what you do with Mighty Community, all of those things, it's political. People don't want it to be, right? Mm -hmm. But it is. It's always going to be political because it's always using the system. Yes. And in order, and it's funny because in my white proximity, Mm -hmm. I've learned how to abuse, not abuse, eh, maybe abuse, yeah, abuse, abuse (laughs) the systems. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah. You know, and how to get around them and how to give Mm. these loopholes and like what, like how many times can I say that I can do that? And then people will just be like, yeah, you can do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and telling people that's how you do it. It's really like, this is how we get around these shitty systems that these white people have put like white freaking rich men have put into place that are totally in pursuit of capitalism and keeping everyone in the system because that's how they make money. And that is how, like, we got to freaking work around these choices and it sucks. And that's why I hate politics because it just doesn't make any sense. Mm. I mean, it makes sense, but it doesn't make any sense. I know. You know? (laughs) Look, it's not that I can't understand it. I just don't like it. Yeah, like, why? Why? It's just why? a dumb way of why doing you, it. Like, yeah, like, why are you such shitty people? Like, why did you have to be like this? That's like, why? I don't get it. Yeah. Like, I want to talk to these people's moms. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> like, if, so, if somebody would Can just... I talk to George Washington's mom? <laughs> Please. I want to slap her. <laughs> honestly. Honestly. And, yeah. like, it's, it's so... Uh, I don't know. And I think that something that's like really fascinating is like, um, so, uh, like this is very current and, um, yeah. is the $750 issue. Um, so I keep hearing like two different things. One is, oh my God, Trump only paid $750 in taxes. And then the other one and, you know, and, and those, that, that line of thinking going like, well, um, mm. that, you know, every, that's going to get him in trouble, right? Everyone's going to be pissed off about that. But then there's the other line of thinking where people are like, no, no, not at all. Trump only paid $750 in taxes. What a genius for manipulating all, and utilizing all of those loopholes and doing all of those things, right? Yeah. So you don't have like this congruence of thought where people are actually able to come together and say, okay, yeah, he exploited loopholes in the system. However, um, and, and abused the system. However, that's not okay. Like you yeah. have this very divided line of thinking where people are like oh what a genius I want him to be my president even more now because manipulate the tax code that I want to do that too and the part that they're missing is that he's the only the only reason he can do that is because it's on poor people's backs and because he has the privilege of those 
of that resources of people to say, hey, you should mm. write off $70,000 of your fucking ugly ass haircuts. Yes. And, you know, and like having those advisors to be able to say that. And it's mm-hmm. not. And so like, OK, like not surprised. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, and but also knowing that I know how to do that, you know, like, mm-hmm. yeah, because that is what I was taught. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. because white proximity and white money you know like yeah and I was able to have those advisors when I was at Google and at at Flextronics because I was making so much money and I could have those conversations with these people about finances and like how do you get around taxes Mm. because that is something that these freaking circles talk about absolutely yeah and people don't understand that and like you know, and um, I always laugh uh, when I see other people taking, like, taking others out for lunch and so- or something, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like a nice, expensive-ass lunch. Mm-hmm. And then they say, I got it. Yep. And I'm like, oh, okay, you're writing that off. Yeah. <laughs> but I... How did I know that? Because I write shit off, you know, right, like, right. <laughs> cause I know how. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, and understanding that. And then like, I ended up taking that and taking it to my bio parent, like my baby mamas and being like, did you file taxes this year? Mm. And they're like, no, I've never filed. I'm like, okay, well we're going to do it and we're getting you money back. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, what? Mm. But and they're like, you can't do that. That's not legal. I'm like, bitch, your ass it is. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, I'm not an accountant, but I know how to scheme this goddamn system. So let's do it. <laughs> right. Right. Well, and I like, and again, I think that like, that's the thing that is so frustrating for me is that like everybody, um, Everybody that uh, that I was raised around and, and a lot of the people in my immediate, immediate vicinity are like, lower taxes and we don't want more taxes. But then they bitch and moan about like, why is our school like overcrowded and oh, yeah. like oh, our roads are <laughs> shitty. And I'm like, well, duh. I can't drive on it. Yeah. Stupid. <laughs> like, of course. Like, because. Like, yeah. Like, and I mean, I live in Illinois. We have like, it's, it's a mess. Like, the budget is a mess. It's always a mess. Like, we're notorious for it. I get that. However, um, there is a distinct, like, lack of critical thought around, well, um, maybe if we got, like, the most wealthy 1% um, (laughs) in the state to, like, pay a little extra. And then I wouldn't Yeah, maybe they could pay something. And then I wouldn't be crippled by, like, you know, five to six thousand dollars in property taxes every year, yeah. which to some people is very, very low. I'm sure that in California, that's like unheard of low. Um, But here it's like for me and for my pay scale, that's like is crippling. Very high. Yeah. 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 And and like it's this idea like I'm like when you're um, pro like Medicare for all or single payer or however you want to phrase it, you know what I mean? Uh, making healthcare a right for everyone. People freak out and they're like, how are you going to pay for it? And it's mostly rich people saying, how are you going to pay for it? And I'm like, you're, you're going to pay, pay for it. it. <laughs> <laughs> That's who's going to pay for it. Yes. You're going to get your taxes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and like, honestly, I would even pay extra in taxes. If it meant that people could access healthcare, if it meant and like yeah, decent healthcare is like yes. my thing, right? Yes, like this bullshit that we have right now is like not Mm-mm. like like it's not doing it right. I right. mean, I have, and even then, like right because of my endo, because of my stage four endo, and understanding how insurance, medical insurances work, and mm-hmm. having the privilege of working at AT&T when I was really, really sick yeah. and them having a great, like amazing insurance policy mm-hmm. for their managers and their regional managers. Mm-hmm. And having people in HR who loved me, who would sit down and tell me, this is how you get insurance to pay for this. 
have your doctor code it this way. Wow. Have your doctor, you know, have yeah. your doctor say this. Um, and being able to go to the doctor and being like, do it. <laughs> you want, you know, like you want my, you want to get paid. I'm not paying you get my insurance money. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> because why else does insurance even exist? man? Like why else do we even have it? That's the whole point of it. And I just, uh, it like I'm it's very privatization of everything. Yes, yeah, and like healthcare, it shouldn't be privatized. It's like I I I'm fortunate to qualify for Medicaid, like, and right. Medicaid covers all of my medical needs by and large, like, mm-hmm. and, and especially my kids, my kids need right. to see the doctor. They have specialists. They need certain medications. Medicaid's going to cover it. It doesn't mean I never have like a ridiculous number of hoops to jump through. Um, because I, I totally do. <laughs> yeah. Um, every time my kid needs to get his refill, um, you know, Medicaid freaks out and they're like, we're not covering that. And I'm like, okay, well, let's call the doctor and do a prior authorization yeah. and send the form. And blah, blah, blah. and then three days later, exactly. he's got his meds. But, yeah. but not everybody has like the mental energy for that. Like people are tired and that's hard. And it took me a really long time to even understand how to do that because nobody walks you through it. Nobody teaches you how to do it. You just freak out for a long time. And that's why people go without meds and then they get sick and then they die. Yeah. Yeah. And I realized that, I mean, I just realizing, I think, I think the only reason why I was so determined in learning about medical insurance when I was sick was because I was going through a custody battle for my daughter mm-hmm. and I was already paying. I was like out so much money. Anyways, <laughs> <laughs> so much money to deal with his fucking ass. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Tune in next week for the second half of my conversation with Mache. You've been listening to 99 Live Balloons, honest talk about shit society ignores. Special thanks to my guest, Nishe Balahadia, for joining me. For more information on projects Nishe is working on or to support her, go to Instagram and follow her at Nishe.Bebe or go to patreon.com slash Nishe. Graphic and web design by Chris Campbell Creative. Go to chriscampbell.com for more. Theme song by Luciano Music Company, licensed by Premium Beat by Shutterstock. Produced and edited by Stoke the Wild Studios. To stay up to date on episodes and content, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at 99pod or go to 99pod.com. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week.